This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Here at Nags Head Church, we have cultivated an environment here. We've done this on purpose, um, uh, over, especially over the last, I guess, 15 years or more, uh, 20 years probably now. 25 years, I'm guessing. We have cultivated an environment here at Nags Head Church. And, and again, if, you are, if you're a Baptist, hang on, just grab hold of the sides of your seat for what I'm about to say. We've cultivated an environment that accepts change. All right, change. You know, you know change. Uh, how, many, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is change. So um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we, have, we have intentionally cultivated that kind of environment. And the primary reason for adapting well to change in our church is that our culture, our society, is constantly changing due to a whole lot of reasons. So, you know, things like technology has changed everything. And uh, so as we look at our culture, we look at our, our society, we look at how we, we gain knowledge and so forth, we change, we have changed along uh, with it. Some of us can remember the days back when, when uh, Lauren Lee, little Lauren Lee used to sit up uh, on the front row of the old church front with an overhead projector. How many of you remember an overhead projector, right? And she had the different things she put on there and put the words up on the screens of the songs that we were singing, you know? And that's kind of, we said that's, that was kind of our first step to get to where we were today. By the way, we had some demons in our computer today, didn't we, Roxanne? All right. Thank you for casting them out and getting, taking care of that. <laughs> we've come to realize that if we're not willing to change some things as a church, and that means primarily our methods of teaching and outreach, uh, we may no longer, in 2015 and beyond, we, we will not any longer be relevant to the people we seek to disciple and reach. But there's one thing about us at Nagshead Church that in the 60 years or so that we have been a church here in the Outer Banks, one thing that has not changed, and what has not changed is this. This is a church, for our guests, I'll just fill you in. This is a church that takes an unapologetic stand on our belief in the Bible as the Word of God. Amen. With such a belief, we have no right, none. It's not our word, it's God's word. We have no right to change it or to ignore it. That means we can't say, well, yeah, we know it says that, but we're not going to pay any attention to that. Uh, our purpose statement that has guided our ministry so well for almost 20 years, we, we came up with this in 1996. Our purpose statement includes these words. It says, we are committed to being contemporary in methods. That means how we do ministry, how we do outreach. Up to date, contemporary, relevant with the times in our methods, yet unchanging in our message. And that's based on these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul said, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try, here's the main thing, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. So as we finish this morning our series, Kingdom Come, You'll hear the Bible say some things that counter our current culture's values. Now, that hopefully doesn't surprise you that the Bible counters culture's values. You might hear the Bible say some things that maybe you didn't know. You might hear some things this morning that upset your apple cart. 
of previously held beliefs or assumptions. And I hope that's true for most of us today. Wow, really? The Bible says that. Our correct responses to the Bible, church, ought to be these. Let me just give you three things before we get into our passage this morning. How do I respond to the Bible? Number one, I I, I must accept it as God's revelation to us. That's a correct response to the Bible. This is God's revelation to us. Paul wrote to Timothy, all all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, and that doesn't mean the preacher, that means the Christian, it's a generic sense there, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, totally equipped, completely equipped for every good work. God has his word given, and it is complete for everything that we need to know that God wants us to know today. Secondly, our response ought to be get it right. Once I understand it's God's revelation to me, then I need to get it right, understand what it says in the correct way. He told, Paul again told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 to do your best, <coughs> excuse me, to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We want to handle it correctly. Number three, then, we need to live it out. But be doers of the word, James said, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Live it out. It needs to be lived out in my life. Be a doer of what the word says. So as we close out this series, we have seen in the Bible things that instruct us on how things are going to shake down when the end times get here and really in their fulfillment when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. And let me just say, if you've missed any of the previous five messages, I encourage you to go back and listen on our podcast at nagsheadchurch.org, and they're all there, and you can get it all in, and get it all, please hear me, get it all in the context. Because if you missed a Sunday, you might say, wait, wait, I don't understand that. Did Rick say this, or did Rick say that? Get the context, and, and that will help you a whole lot about what's been taught. Following Christ's return, following his millennial reign where we were last Sunday, his thousand years on the earth, he's going to judge all those who live their lives without receiving his free salvation. That's going to be their time of judgment. And then what we typically think of when we think of our eternal home as believers begins. Then it really kicks in and goes on forever. As the song just sang, 10,000 years and then forevermore. The best passage that gives us the details for that eternal existence is not found from the, listen to me, I love you, but I want you to understand something. The best passage, the best details, the best understanding of those things in the end times, you won't find those from the supposed experience of a four-year-old or anyone else who claims they got to see heaven. Did you hear me? I know some people get excited about, this little boy went to heaven, and I say, you know, well, John got this revelation. Who do we want to believe? Who do we want to trust? Be careful what you believe, and be careful what you assume. Go to the Word of God. God's given us, man, I hope you get this principle. God has given us all He wants to know right here, right now, in the Bible. Do you understand that? It's, again, His complete revelation in the scripture. 
Now that passage in the scripture that gives us so much detail is in the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. And you want to follow along, so I hope you're, you got your Bible open. I hope you're there uh, with me in the scriptures. These two chapters give us the answers to some things that we might be asking. Such as, number one question, is it heaven or what and where is it? We're going to spend our eternal home as Christians. Is it heaven or where is it? What is it? Look with me at chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. John says, and then I saw, get this, a new heaven and a new earth. Now those things tell me, Nag said, church, we've created this environment of change. Guess what's happened? Something has changed in heaven and earth, hasn't it? Because John says, it's new. And the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. You have to back way up in Revelation to get that context. But that same angel, he said, came and spoke with me. And here's what the angel said. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Is it heaven or what? Where is it? First of all, it's a new creation. It's something new. The earth and the solar systems we saw last Sunday from Peter have been destroyed. With a fervent heat, melted, gone, this planet will be destroyed. The stars... The sun, everything that's up there in the skies will be destroyed. So Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth. And John sees in this vision a new holy city. Not the old Jerusalem that exists right now in Jerusalem or in Israel, but the new Jerusalem. He says, coming down to the new earth. Now it could be what's coming down. I'm not sure, don't know, because we don't have that detail. It could be that the heaven that exists right now, There's a heaven that exists right now where the presence of God is. John was given a vision of that in chapter 4 and chapter 5, so we know it's there. It could be that is descending down uh, where God's throne is, where he's worshipped today. But whatever it is, he says it descends to the earth. And some suggest that because it says that, that maybe this new Jerusalem will hover above the earth. I don't know. And then how many surfers here today? All right, raise your hand if you're a surfer, surfer dude. I have some bad, bad news for you. Did you catch that? Some of you started having heart palpitations when you read what John says because he says on this new earth there was no sea. Will there be surfing in heaven? And the answer is no, all right? There will be no sea unless God creates some new way to surf or, or maybe we, they have one of those things like they have in the desert places, you know, where they man-made ways like, you know, water country and all that. Maybe then there will be surfing. But there is no sea on the earth. And, and people wonder why that is. Well, just think about how many people are going to live here. All the people from Adam and Eve until the end who have trusted Christ are going to populate this earth. So got to give up something. We'll give up surfing to accommodate everybody, all right? Sorry, Steve, all right? You take that up with God, not with me, all right? But you'll have better things to do, trust me. 
It's where the Father and Jesus will live with us. New creation, it's where the Father and Jesus will live with us. I don't know of anything that suggests the Father will transform into a visible being. He's not visible. God's a spirit. Jesus told the woman at the well, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. No, there's nothing that suggests the Father. And, you know, we have a lot of pictures that, that supposedly are the Father in heaven. And usually he's got this long white hair and a long white beard. And we, there is no visual. There. He does not have physical appearance at all. But Jesus will certainly be there. And he does have a physical body. And he'll be visible as he is today in heaven and he, as he will be when he returns. So they're going to live with us. Well, how long, question two, how long will it last? Look at verse five of chapter 22. We're going to bounce around trying to put these questions together. It says, their night will no longer exist, and people will not need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. How long will it last? says here, forever and ever. Remember what Jesus promised when he's speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he got to that, maybe the most famous verse in all the Bible, verse 16. He said, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, uh, God's one and only Son, then you will not perish, but you will have what kind of life? Everlasting life. So how long will it last? This is going to be the part that goes on Forever, I guess forever is that way. Forever and ever. What's it like? And what will we do in that place? Well, verse 3, chapter 22, tells us there's no more curse. There will be no longer, there will no longer be any curse. Curse, what is that talking about? That goes all the way back to where? To the Garden of Eden. To when Adam and Eve sinned. And the curse was placed upon them. The curse was placed upon the earth. And, you know, the, all the things that you and I have to endure go back to the fact that there is sin in this world. Don't believe that God causes all the terrible things that happen. Some people want to blame everything on God when earthquakes happen and, and tornadoes happen. And look, what, what's God doing? This, that's all because this earth has been cursed. And the Bible says in Romans, this earth this earth groans for this time of new creation because it knows it's messed up. There'll be no more curse. There'll be, in other words, there'll be no sin because there's no curse. The result of Adam's sin was the curse of death on all of us and a curse on the earth as well. And when Jesus died, he died on that cross. The Bible says for you and me, he took that curse upon himself. And so in eternity, the curse is ended. There is no curse. Which means what? We'll back up to chapter 21 and verse 4. Because there's no curse, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. There won't be any funeral homes in heaven. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer. There won't be any counselors in heaven, no psychiatrists in heaven. There'll be no sadness in heaven. Why? Because the previous things have passed away. Well, if there's no death, that means there's no disease. So there won't be any hospitals. There won't be any emergency medical services. There won't be any, everybody will be in these perfect bodies for existence forever and ever and ever. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more death. Sounds like a place I want to be. How about you? No more weight problems. <laughs> I had my physical the other day. 
And the doctor says, hey, there's some good news, Rick. You're losing weight, which I am. I've been kind of in the last couple of weeks gotten serious about what I eat and, and I've taken off a few pounds. And since last year, he noticed that, which was good. But he said, but this number here from your blood work, this is kind of scary. And so uh, I'm taking more medication to keep my blood sugar down, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and, and he said, you might take some, and he told me what kind of herbal stuff to take to help the stiffness in my joints. That's a result of my high blood sugar. And so I'm taking that. And I take it, you know, because I finally a couple of years ago got to the age where I said, I probably ought to take a multiple vitamin every day. So I take, you know, one a day for old men. And, and, and so I'm taking that. And, and he told me last year, he says, and it wouldn't be a bad idea because of your family's history to take a little low-dose aspirin every day. So I take a low-dose aspirin every day, and you understand why, Rich, to keep, keep all that stuff flowing real good and, and uh, blood. And uh, so um, uh, all those go in the trash when we get to heaven, all that stuff. No, my, my medicine cabinet will no longer look like a pharmacy. How's that? You know, and that's a good news. None of that. When we get to heaven, no more curse, no tears, no death, no grief, no crying, no pain, no night or day. We read that a moment ago in in verse 5 of chapter 22. Why? Because the illumination, what lights up this new earth and this new city of Jerusalem, the glory of God from the throne, lights it all up. It will be lit by God and by Christ. That's going to be an amazing thing to see, by the way, isn't it? There will be no temple in heaven. No sanctuary, we're told. Now, to us, that's not so important. Why is, and that's in in chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a sanctuary in it. Because the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. To us, as Gentile believers, that's not not so important because we don't have a temple. We don't have a sanctuary where we go to worship. By the way, some people say, well, isn't this your sanctuary? No. This is our, we call this our auditorium. The Bible calls this our sanctuary. This is where the Holy Spirit resides. There will be no sanctuary, no temple for sacrifices. To the Jewish believers, it means the end of the sacrificial worship that had an altar in the temple that's restarted. It will be restarted again, by the way, in the, last, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But it's a reminder. What does it mean there's no sanctuary? It's just a reminder to us that there, is, there won't be any kind of building we need to worship. Why? Because we'll be right there in the presence of God, illuminated by the presence of God. It will be worshiped 24-7. It's huge and three-dimensional. Chapter 21, verse 9. Read down with me through uh, verse 21. Pretty long passage here, but look how big it is. And then one of the seven angels who had filled the bowls. We already read that. Let's jump down to verse 12. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. And then there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Each side had three gates. The city had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundation. Do you get the idea that 12 is an important number here? Then the one who spoke to me, with me, the angel had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Let's see how big it is, he said. So the city was laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. 
And then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And then in verse 20, he goes 19 and 20, he lists all these stones. Some of them, we're not even sure what they are, but they're precious stones of some kind. Verse 21, the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. That's one big clam that, that produced that, or oyster, you know, that produced that. 12 gates out of one single pearl. The broad street of the city was pure gold. You know, we've never seen gold this pure. Never on this earth. Why? Because he said, like transparent glass, that's how pure it is. It's huge. It's three-dimensional. It's bedazzlingly beautiful. It's constructed of precious stones, pure transparent gold, radiant with the glory of God. God, in in constructing this, has spared no expense. He said in the beginning we read, he said, I saw the holy city coming down like a bride adorned for her wedding. Sparing no expense. The most beautiful. You, you, You ladies who are married, probably the day you were the most beautiful in your whole lives, there are probably two of them, two days when you were the most beautiful, well, three of them. One was when you were first born. Secondly, when you were adorned for your wedding. And third, if you have any children, when you gave birth. All right? That's probably when you're the most beautiful in your whole lives. But he says, like a bride, Brenda, Brenda you're, you're a wedding planner. Um, they tend to spend no, spare no expense for this stuff, do they? It's crazy how much money goes. Why? Because this is for the bride her special day. He says, that's how beautiful it is. No comparison. None to where we live today. We think we live on the most beautiful place on all the earth. You go 300 yards that way and you look at that ocean and you go, how can it get any better than this? But it can. It will be. It has a massive wall that's high and thick, 144 cubits thick. How thick is that? 216 feet thick with no possibility of evil in the earth. The walls are simply symbolic of the safety and protection that God provides for eternity. It's solid with 12 foundations, and each of the foundations under the city are named after the apostles. And why does God use that symbolism? Because the apostles' teaching is the foundation of the church. This suggests no storm can ever erode the city. 12 foundations. The number 12, by the way, it's an important number. It's used 21 times in Revelation, in the whole book of Revelation. It's used seven times just in chapter 21. And the, book, and the number 12 in the scripture, numbers often had meaning in the Bible. 12 is commonly understood to stand for government or administration, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and so 12 gates. Its length and its width and its height are equally, they're all the same, equally over 1,300 miles long wide and high. has 12 gates, as we said, each one a pearl. Evidently, we'll be coming in and out of the holy city because we'll have this whole earth in which to live this new earth. has a broad street made of transparent gold. There's a tree of life, it says. speaks of a tree of life. If you jump down to chapter uh, 22, verse 2, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit Every month, the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. So here's this tree that's given, the tree of life. 
Every month, different kind of fruit pops out on this tree. Symbolic of God's provision. The leaves, symbolic of the healing that God has provided uh, for the world through Christ and, and is given in this time. We'll never go in heaven without our needs being met. That's what the tree of life represents. And then we'll be there to reign and to serve with the Lord along with the angels. Verse 3 of chapter 22 The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him. Verses 8 and 9, jump down there, same chapter, chapter 22. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. By the way, we never worship angels, never. Angels are not worthy of our worship. Don't do that, he said. Why? Because I'm a fellow slave with you and with your brothers and the prophets and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So we'll be there to reign and to serve with God's people and his angels, his people who are his people, where they're described in these two chapters. They are the people who belong to him because they were redeemed, because they were purchased by Christ at the cost of his blood. They are the the victors, the overcomers, the Bible says. Let's bounce back to, to verse seven. The victor will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. The victors. Uh, who are the victors? Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Why do you know that those are the victors? Because 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, written by the same John, says, Who is he that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life are there. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says your name is written in this One book, the Lamb's Book of Life. It says God calls us his slaves. If if you're saved, listen, that's not a bad word here. When when people use the word and people use slavery, it's a bad thing. But when it refers to us and God, uh, if you have been saved, the Bible tells us we are saved to serve, aren't we? That's what God has brought us into his family so that we can serve him and we can serve others. And by serving others, we are serving him. That would tell me that someone who has no desire to serve, by the way, probably has never been saved. And those whose robes are washed, it tells us in these passages, those whose robes are washed are a part of this city, a part of this eternal life. And that washing is done by Christ through his shed blood. Your sins are forgiven. And this may be specifically referring to the tribulation martyrs because they weren't part of the church because the church was taken before they were killed, but because of their faith, they're given the right to be there forever. You can jot Revelation 7, 14 down for that. So that's who's going to be there. Well, who is not there? And John's pretty specific. The word of God's pretty specific about who will not be there. Look with me at chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowards, the unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake 
that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, that was a reference back to where we were last Sunday and the great white throne judgment of those who never received Christ. Verse 27, the first part of the verse, nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 15. Again, similar lists repeated. Outside, not in the city, not here residing in this new heaven and new earth. Outside are the dogs, and that's not talking about Fido, okay? Dogs were a, were a cultural term in those days to refer, the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, but it, means, it simply means unbelievers. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. A list of sinful behaviors is given, and it says those who practice these things, those whose lifestyles are characterized by them, will not be in the eternal home. They're all unbelievers, is what the implication here is here. So let's define them. Let's go through that list. Cowards. Cowards would be those, un- those who are afraid to confess Christ as Savior. You know, there's some people who have heard the gospel. Maybe you've shared it with them. But they don't want, because of fear of what other people might think about them, they, or whatever they might fear, they refuse to believe. They may have wanted to believe, but they let their fear prevent them because they're afraid of what it might cost them. So they don't accept Christ. Cowards. Unbelievers, John says. Unbelievers simply means, to, the word believe means to trust. So unbelievers are those who are unwilling to trust Christ for their salvation. The vile. Vile means those who are given over to disgusting immorality. And it could be of any kind. So many things are immoral. Murderers. I think we understand that. That was one of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. Murders refer to malicious and savage killers. I think of you know, what's happening in places in the world right now. And the murders that are happening in the name of religion. That would fit here. The sexually immoral. Well, here's one that goes against our culture right now. goes against the values of our culture. The Bible defines sexual immorality. Let me just say this really simply. The Bible defines sexual immorality as any and all sex outside of the bounds, the binding vows of marriage. Anything outside of marriage, any kind of sexual activity is immoral biblically. Whether it's physical, it could be such things as pornography. And the Bible defines marriage as between a man and a woman. So sexual immorality then is sex before marriage, sex with someone you're not married to. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Our our world, by the way, our culture doesn't want to hear that. So when we say that and we say it aloud, we're saying to our culture today, we're saying hate speech, aren't we? Well, God says these folks will not be there. Sorcerers, that's something that we don't think of a whole lot. Sorcerers are people involved in occultic practices. By the way, this past week, popping up on Facebook was a warning about a new game that kids are playing in school called something about Charlie Charlie. 
Did you see that? How many of you saw that? You saw that thing there? You parents need to be aware of that. It's kind of a new version of the Ouija board, but that you do yourself, and they take a piece of paper, and they take two pencils, and they lay one on top of the other like this, and they then invoke this demon, supposedly from Mexico, Mexican demon. I've eaten a few of those. How about you? But, uh, but this... Uh, But but in all sincerity, in all seriousness, kids are doing this, and they are invoking this demon to move the pencils. Now, you think, if you think that's just an innocent, simple, silly game, you are wrong. All right? Beware of that, parents. Warn your children to stay away from those kind of things, because that's how things creep into their lives. Sorcerers, idolaters, those who insult God by worshiping images, whatever that image might be, that image might be parked in your driveway. All right? Uh, that image might be in your house. We, we don't think of Americans. We don't worship images, but we do. Sorry. Be careful. Worshiping images. Uh, all liars. Uh-oh. Well, you know what? I don't know. I don't think I've ever been sexually immoral, and I'm not a murderer, but... All liars, it says, and that means compulsive deceivers. A similar list, again, is in chapter 22, verse 15. It raises a question. Some of you are asking, okay, well then, is salvation really obtained by not doing these things? If I don't do any of these things, does that get me into heaven? And the answer is no. Salvation is by grace and not by works, isn't it? That's the whole gospel. Jesus did what we could not do. And so if someone professes Christ, but he's guilty of any of the sins on this list, my question is, Rick, is that person going to heaven or hell? And I think those are good questions, especially in this culture that is constantly redefining sin. By the way, why does culture constantly redefine sin? Because it's not happy with what God's word says and because it wants to justify itself. So we constantly redefine sin. But what does the Bible teach? That's how we get our answers. Well, Paul deals with that in his first letter to the Corinthian church. The city and the culture of Corinth was famous. I mean, if there was a city in the world that was known for its sexual immorality, it was the seaport city of Corinth. You know, a sailor has a woman in every port. Well, they all had one in Corinth. The famous for its sexual freedom, meaning they had prostitution, they had sex outside of marriage, homosexuality was all a part of who they were in the city of Corinth. And Paul, who started the church in Corinth, I mean, if there's one place that needed a church, Paul said, let's take the gospel there. He met some people, led some people to Christ, got a church going there. Paul knew the people there, and he knew the past of many of the people who had become Christians. And so here's what he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. He says to this church, don't you know, making the assumption, you do know this because I've taught you this, don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, that means people who use abusive speech, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And then here's the kicker. 
Some of you, he says to this church, were like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, pronounced not guilty in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, Paul makes it really clear that some in the Corinthian church were in, were, and the word were is in past tense, were guilty of those practices. And that's a very similar list as to what we see in Revelation. But he says to them, but when you trusted Christ, you were washed, you were made holy, you were pronounced not guilty. Now, let me just take an example here. I'm not going to ask this morning who in this room has committed any of these sins. But one, I'm going to ask one, okay? How many of you have sometime in your life told some kind of a lie? Whether you called it a fib when you were little, whether you called it a little white lie, I think that's probably 100% of us sometime in our Haven't we all? So we are all what? Liars. Ooh, that's on that list in Revelation, isn't it? What's the point of Scripture? Listen to me, get this. And by the way, probably the first person we ever lied to was who? Mom. I didn't do that. So how many of us are guilty then? Not only did we lie to mom, but how many of us are guilty of dishonoring our parents because we lied to them, okay? Most of us, I would say. So there's a couple of commandments we've disobeyed. And if we lied about taking a cookie from the cookie jar, how many of us are guilty of thievery? All right, we're thieves too. You see, it just kind of grows. But how many of us, and don't raise your hand, because I hope this is nobody in this room, how many of us are known for our habitual lying? That's the tense, that's the understanding of what the scripture is speaking of. When people mention your name is the first thing people think of your sinful behavior. Somebody calls your name, they say, oh, he's a thief. Oh, he's a liar. Oh, he's this, she's that. So the question is, are you identified among others as being one of these things? Is this what characterizes your life. And the answer should be, if you are a Christian, the answer should be what? No. Why? Even if I was that, I have been washed. I have been made holy. I have been justified. In other words, I have been changed by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Salvation has taken my past and removed it as far as the east is from the west. We are made new creations when Christ becomes our Savior. Are we perfect? Somebody tell me. None of us. Do we sometimes backslide into old habits? Yes. But we are no longer identified by those things because there has been this change. These people described in Revelation by John, by the angel, These people are people that have never had that change because they never accepted Christ as their Savior. We need to always understand salvation is always about grace, not about works. 
John Newton. You familiar with John, the name John Newton? How many of you know the name John Newton? He's not the guy with gravity. Okay, that was another Newton. John Newton. Maybe you're familiar with that name. If you're not familiar with the name, you're certainly familiar with some things that he wrote. For example, he wrote a song that we sing once in a while called Amazing Grace. Okay, now I know who John Newton is. John Newton, in his past, had been a slave trader. Can you think of anything more vile in this world? Slave trader. But then, on one of John Newton's slave exhibitions, getting sl- John Newton was captured and was turned into a slave by people in Africa where he was taking slaves. See, there was slavery being practiced among their own people, and he became one of their slaves for many years. So he lived in slavery as well. It's kind of what comes around, goes around, comes around kind of a thing. He didn't have an ideal life by any stretch. He knew how vile he was. He knew how lost he was. But then he escaped slavery. He, was, he got out of it, was able to return home to England, and he heard the gospel, and hearing that gospel of grace, that God loved him, that Jesus died for him, that his sins could be forgiven. John Newton became a Christian. And one of his quotes, he said, in, in one of his quotes, that, that there would be three great surprises in the last day. First, there would be people there with Christ that we never expected to be there. That's going to be a surprise, he said. Second, there would be people not there that we felt would be there. Wow, man, I can't believe he's there. Third, and this is the biggest one. Third, Newton said the greatest surprise of all was namely that an old slave trader named John Newton would be there by the grace of God. Last point in your notes, or two more points quickly. God's final call. Chapter 21, verse 6. And he said to me, this is Christ, the one seated on the throne, said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. I am the A and the Z. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. Chapter 22, verse 11. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy go on in being made filthy. But let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy go on in being made holy. Verse 6 of chapter 21, the point is God, Jesus offers eternal life to those who desire it, those who thirst. I've got water for you. The second verse, the point is, we must either accept or reject his offer of life. Sometime in life, we must do this. And by the way, if I never accept, then I go through life rejecting. And then third, in verse 17, both the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. That tells you and me that because we're not there yet, there is still time to accept his invitation to eternal life. And so this last question this morning is this. Am I ready?
verse 20. The end of the Bible right here. He who testifies about these things, that's, that's Jesus, says, yes, I am coming quickly. And John responds by saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Am I ready? How do I know if I'm ready? One more point in your notes. I know I'm ready if I'm hoping for, praying for, and working for his kingdom to come. For 2,000 years now, the gospel has offered the gift of salvation by grace. It's never been about what we do, but it's always been about what Christ has done. And it's been offered to the whole world, everyone in the world. But that time of grace will come to an end and we don't know when that time will be. And Christ is returning for his own and he'll return to take out vengeance on all those who have rebelled against him in unbelief and he will judge everyone. And heaven is real and so is hell. And that means that we as Christians, listen to me, believer, we as Christians have a task before us to finish and to live out as we live the life of Christ in this world, because there are still souls who thirst for the salvation that Christ provides. There are still people who want to know, how do I know God? How do I have eternal life? They just don't know how to get it. But that's where we come in, because we do, because we've received it. Jesus' last words in the Bible, there in verse 20, tell us he is coming, and I hope you're ready whoever you are this morning. I hope you look forward to his coming as John did. And until he comes, John's final benediction on us was for the Lord's grace to be with us no matter what happens in these end times. Would you bow with me in prayer? Maybe you heard some things this morning that kind of rattled your cage. And within your heart, you're answering, you're saying, I don't know that I'm ready. But I want to be ready. Well, the Bible says very simply, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. That's all there is to it. And you'll have everlasting life. Put your total trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, in his resurrection, who he is. And he promises you everlasting life. If we can help you understand that, we're here today to do that. I'll be hanging out up front in just a moment. I'd like nothing more than to talk with you. But Christian, I hope you're ready. I hope you're working for the kingdom to come. Because the Bible says the day is coming when work will be over. Time will be done. Father, would you help us to be ready? May your kingdom come. Soon, Lord Jesus, is our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.